Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Please listen carefully. What is communication? The act of taking a thought from my head and putting it into your essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. Usually what I have in my head to the outside world draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we'd be lost. I think it's the ability to share your innermost feelings and thoughts with others. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science Episode 70, proud member of the Exceptional Podcast Network. I'm Matt Hott, joined as always by Michelle Wintering. Hi, Matt. Hi, Michelle. And Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? Hey, man. How's things going? Not too bad. Can't complain. Happy to be here. I am so glad to be here, and I want you, the listener at home, head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, which links you directly to our friends over at the Exceptional Podcast Network. If you've got money to burn, make sure you check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash mwhproduction. Michelle, you figured out this week that we can actually text our phone number? Yes, we can. So feel free to text us, everybody. 614-681-1798. Or our email is speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. And I would be remiss not to mention that our friends over at the XPN Network They have the SAU19 conference coming up. That's the Special Apps Update Conference, March 25th through the 29th. Uh, Online, head over to uh, exceptionaled.com. Talking with Tech's Rachel Madel is uh, presenting live along with Mobuti, Lauren Enders, Beth Lawrence, Jane Odom, Odom, Amanda Schomburg, and Dina Seifert. So that'll be pretty cool. Head over to exceptionaled.com and click on SAU19. The tapping noise that I won't be able to get rid of is my two-year-old who took a long nap today, and he is now awake while we record this podcast. He's pretty awesome. Oh, my gosh. I am parenting for the win. I bought my son a Switch for his birthday, and in one day, he's now so addicted that when I told him that he had to put it away and he got grounded from it tomorrow, I thought we were going to have a nuclear meltdown. Your kids are cute, though. Oh, they're cute, but I am screwing up parenting left and right, just so you guys know. I don't claim trial to be there for everybody, Matt. <laughs> he found your coaster. I did. That, or he did. That's true. He found it because he probably took it somewhere. <laughs> Michael, how you are drinking fermented tea tonight. How has your week been? If you're drinking fermented tea, I'm guessing not a good week. No, it's actually been great. I was uh, in the clinic today, had uh, many students back to back to back. And randomly, one of my students came to the clinic with a giant chocolate milkshake just for me. Oh, so that was that made my day. 
Did it have fermented tea in it? It did not. That's why I'm drinking it now. I'm trying to like that kombucha, man. Trying to trying to switch it up. Mm, I've never had it, and I don't think I ever want to. It's not bad. So people, so our listeners can text us if they like kombucha or not. How about that? Test the number out and give us your opinion on kombucha. Six one four six eight one one seven nine eight. Please, ugh. I don't even know. Michelle, have you ever had it? I have. I'm not a fan. I've tried a few different kinds, too. If you have one you recommend, I will try it, Mike. But I, I would love to see Matt do a live tasting because oh, I just really no. want his reactions. They're good. Give it a shot. Give it a shot. Hey, I still, I'm still willing to do live on the air a mini mental or a slums following a adult beverage or three to show how the brain becomes impaired and we could do live testing on the air is this like the speech pathology version of drunk history yeah it would be we should name five objects apple pen table house (laughs) and the thingy you drive around with and then we ask mike about everything exact uh you know technical things about executive oh my gosh that would actually be really interesting like michael telling me and telling everybody what is happening yeah episode 100 let's do it That we is should how do we're going to celebrate kind of our birthday. That. Um, on today's show, I was lucky enough to sit down with Kathy Sofel. She is the ASHA VP for Planning Candidate. Uh, Kathy is also the current program director for the University of Nebraska Omaha. And coming up on today's show, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the F word and why we're allowed to say it, or I guess physically allowed to say it. Also, dietary. Uh, how would you say that? Dietary. My brain just broke in the middle of that sentence, guys. Live on air. I'm, I'm not sure what you're trying to say. Oh, standardization oh. of dietary <laughs> levels. Oh, my gosh. My brain broke, and I might leave that in there because that is a, what is that? Is that an aphasic moment? We all have them. We all have them. However, the news of today, and I don't even know how else to put this. Did you guys catch what Donald Trump did this week? We what? sure did. He did it today. Yeah, he did it today, Tuesday, March 18th. So what happened was Joe Biden was announcing his potential running for president of the United States. And I guess he had a word moment. And Joe Biden has a history of stuttering. He has been honored by the National Stuttering Association uh, as a, uh, a member and a keynote speaker and and someone who has flourished with a disfluency. And he had a word finding moment and Donald Trump said that he's not, he's not good and he is a stutterer. Or no, he said he had a low IQ. I'm sorry, he had a low IQ. I think yeah, he's embraced the stutterer title. Right? Yes. But Donald Trump has fault. said that he has a low IQ because of his stutter. Wow. Uh, the letter I or the the link I posted for you guys is from WeStutter.org. It's the NSA's response to President Trump's tweet, uh, and basically they are saying that stuttering is not a reflection of an individual's intelligence. Conflating a person stuttering with an inability to communicate reinforces harmful false stereotypes. And I apologize if I got it confused because back in 2011, Seth Meyers stumbled uh, during a joke, and Donald Trump called him a stutterer in a derogatory term, which then got the Stuttering Foundation to post a shame on you, Mr. Trump, link back in May 2nd, 2011. 
And we are talking NSA as a National Stuttering Association, not the National Security Agency. Yes. (laughs) I did not realize they both had the same acronym. I apologize. Now, I I think the response from the National Stuttering Association was very professional. And the last part of it invited President Trump and anyone else who is interested in learning more about the latest stuttering research, challenges faced by the people who stutter, and the work that the NSA does every day to visit their website, westutter.org. I I don't have words. I'm just... Well, this does so much harm. Like... Not just for Biden. I really could, couldn't could care less if you are a Republican or a Democrat. I really couldn't care less. But when you have a celebrity or a president who usually in social skills groups, you tell people to look at the president because they model good social skills, making fun of somebody with a stutter, it flies in the face of everything we do as therapists. I actually got this article because of Craig Coleman, who was our can- who uh, was on the show a couple weeks ago, had posted this to his Twitter or Facebook. Yeah, I don't. I just am. I feel like the looking to someone in that position as a social language guide went out the window with this president. <laughs> We've seen him make fun of of fully disabled people. True. He, did, he did that before he even became president, and he was still millions of people still somehow voted for him. So we've seen him make fun of just about everyone except for white supremacists. So there you go. And it's a lesson to not make comments about how people speak or their articulation or their accent because you might not know what is behind it the journalist that trump mocked was new york times journalist sergey kovaleski uh, who has a joint condition that affects his movement but how can we flip this we're always therapists we're always told to look on the positive side how do we take something like this and how do we train our students our our patients how to handle uh people making fun of them how to mock them because we know with stuttering that it most likely has something to do with physiological and that stress can make it worse. How do we work with our patients or students to help them overcome bullying situations? Cause that's all this really is, is a bullying situation. I think we can share with them what the overall response is to this. I think the vast majority of Americans see what Trump said and are instantly sympathetic for Biden. I think, I think this, this type of behavior completely backfires on trump and and uh exactly your kid said it best i I had to mute him there but no you're like you're right i mean but that's my big concern is i i work with stutterers i work with kids with apraxia and their their biggest fear and i work with adults that have had major strokes that are afraid to to walk back outside because they don't want to be mocked when they're in the grocery store they don't want to be mocked behind their backs I think connecting them, just like Mike said, giving them examples like this or, or examples of public figures that have overcome that. And if you can, connecting them with someone local. You know, if it's a middle schooler, connecting them with a high schooler or a college student who deals with stuttering. Um, and I think they can support each other even more at times than we can intervene True. for them. It- and, and, and Joe Biden has been such a wonderful presenter and speaker on 
stuttering causes and and, and for the stuttering foundation or for the uh, NSA. Yeah, he's spoken for their mm-hmm. events. I know before. This just upsets me more than it really, maybe more more than it should, or or the right amount of upsetness for this. I think that uh, should be your yeah. response, especially in the field we're in. Yeah, this is definitely. You know, I think you really hit on it really, really well, Matt. Before when you mentioned, you know, the president is someone that you mentioned to students as someone who who is an instant role model, somebody who instantly deserves respect. And I've worked with so many teens and and younger kids that have behavior issues. And you kind of teach them, as long as you do the right thing, everything's going to work out for you. Treat others the way you right. want to be treated, and things are going to be fine. And I've had so many kids say to me, well, Donald Trump became president, and all he's done is lie and bully people. How did he become president? So it instantly backfires on some of the most common advice you, you use with students. You know, Everything goes against the grain with this, with this guy. And... And for him to, he's just, he constantly will, he has no recourse for his insults and what he'll do to put down Mm -hmm. Democrats or anyone who says anything bad about him. So this is a, it's, it's a tough place and we're seeing, and not just in the area of speech and language or disabilities, he's further making this country more divisive. We, uh, in my social skills group I have at the high school, I always teach about how you handle adversity, how you handle, you know, people you don't like. And I was thinking about it this week that I'm showing the, the, the politician that got that punched that kid from getting hit in the egg. Did you see that? Some kid yes, like, hit a politician with an that egg. That was in, in Australia. Yeah. And then the politician yeah. punched him. Yeah. And compared to Arnold Schwarzenegger, when someone threw an egg at him, he said something like in the video clip, he's like, I wish he would have thrown bacon as well. And we're using that as like, I, I've always used politicians because they usually show the good and the bad. And I feel like something like this, I have to hide some of the things he says from, from some of my students because they just, they'll take it too personal. And, and I don't know if I want to have that conversation or even if I should have that conversation if, if I'm even the right person. We've all, we've all worked with the, with the, the young child with fluency issues and they're, and it, at least in my experience, they run around, they play just like any typical kid. And they're happy, they're self-confident, they're in their own little world, just like any kid. And then as they get older and self-awareness grows, uh, social relationships become more dynamic, that's when they start to recognize, hey, other people are communicating more effectively and I'm different than everybody else. And this is when the anxiety portion comes in and the self-awareness and the self-value and self-worth kicks in and the fluency gets worse and stuttering gets worse mm-hmm. because the anxiety kicks in and you're wondering, why am I different? Why, are, why am I, quote unquote, disabled? And that's when the misperception comes in to people who are not in the speech field that stuttering is equated to low intelligence, is equated to low functioning. And that is a stigma that I at least feel is never going to fully go away with the, with the, the overall community. And here, glad. We, and here we have the president of the United States saying this. I'm, I'm glad you said that, Mike, too, because that is the part that just sucks uh, as a speech pathologist to see that because we fight against it 
with our kids every day to build up their confidence and build up their their skills and like you said when they become more aware of that fluency issue or apraxia or whatever it is that they're facing and this is just perpetuating the idea that that is linked with IQ exactly we want to hear from you though head over to our, it's kind of a bummer to end on that one but I agree head over to our website speechsciencepodcast.com from there email us your thoughts speech uh, speech science podcast at gmail.com or give us a phone call or text 614-681-1798 or message right, us on Instagram or message shout us out to all the people who have liked and commented and sent messages via Instagram this week Michelle you've been rocking that so hey, hashtag Mike as well that is not just me Mike what is, is it like hashtag SS pod SS pod yes sir I love it that's us our next story today uh I thought this was super interesting but before we get into it I want to know what is your favorite f word Michael favorite f word mm-hmm probably fart really <laughs> okay Michelle what's your favorite did F-word? you say fart or fart <laughs> Both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which vowel sound? No. Um, funny, fancy. I used to have a, uh, a student who loved words that ended in the E sound. Oh. There you go. My favorite F word. I'm not going to say the other one. <laughs> I know. I was trying to get someone to say it off the air. My favorite is fam grasp. I'm Do you sorry. Even know what it, fam grasp. It means to fumble. So, like, you could say the running back fam grasped on the way to the end zone you just add an ed yeah fam grasp it's a 16th century word uh for a hand to to like let go so it's a mispronunciation of the word fumble but anywho the reason i ask uh, is because of this article that we pulled up and it's from uh, npr and it talks about did cooking change the way our jaws a line up to allow us to say fun words like fancy or fam grasp or everyone's four letter F word favorite fake or fork, nice. or or fork. Fart. fork. <laughs> but I thought this was super interesting. Basically what they're saying is that because we were able to eat softer foods, our bottom jaw was able to our bottom jaw, our jaw was able to retreat in a little bit, allowing a little bit of an overbite which then allowed our bottom lip to meet up with our teeth to go fa, 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 fun or van. I find this super interesting. And y'all are the ones that posted on Instagram about the wonderful articulation chart. <laughs> I mean, I think it's cool. I'm just curious. Was it comparing anatomy from years ago is how the, mm-hmm. this changed? So that's yep. the hypothesis as to potentially why. According to the new theory, food influenced language through a complex chain of events. First came agriculture and early forms of food processing, like fermentation. The meals became easier to chew. No longer were humans relying so heavily on tough meats, roots, and berries. And as a result, this is from the article, newly pampered humans ended up with a different kind of bite. Their teeth were no longer worn down so much, and they were able to maintain a natural overbite uh, to produce F and V sounds. The labial dental fricative, for those of you still in uh, phonetics. 
That is very interesting. I know. I'm, right? I'm fascinated. Well, I, I love the history of how sounds are made, like just from a developmental sound side where the tongue just kind of sits in there and the babies just kind of make a ba ba ma 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 sound as they're playing. And then as they grow up, they make more sounds. Developmentally, they make sounds. And it makes sense that as we evolve as a species, the sounds we make change as well. Well, thank goodness this happened because F words are the best. They are fun and fantastic. <laughs> you know, my search history now has history of the F word in it because I am curious after looking at that article about. Oh, so where, where did that word come from? from? The, this is kind of a long article. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Text us your favorite F word. Ooh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Send it our way. 614-681-1798. I hope we just get a string or stream of single text messages of just different F words. That would be, that'd be fun. And also probably make me feel really bad as it comes beeping into my phone. And the most creative F word will get on the air next week. How about that? We'll give you a shout out. Yes, we will. We'll, we'll invite you on air. How's that? Oh, nice. Um, but no, I find it interesting because when we talk about articulation and you're wondering how I'm going to link this back into speech therapy, what do, so I want to know what you guys do in the private practice sector, or at least in, in the, not in the school district sector of, of articulation for the most part for my high school kids and, and really pretty much anyone after middle school, if they're getting good grades, we don't really work on articulation. Well, the good thing about the private practice is you can kind of, you're not really tied down to academics and the IEP. You know, you can really create your own treatment plan and your own goals. So if a parent comes in or an older child comes in, an older student, tomorrow I'm, I'm meeting uh, an older student who wants to work on some Arctic himself, who's self-motivated. Uh, and, and that's really, you know, you're kind of able to, to do what, what is best for the individual. So I've worked with our Arctic really uh, 21 and below at this point, and you're really able to kind of uh, really take your own course with it. And it, when the, if you're working with someone else and they're highly motivated and they go home and do their speech homework in front of a mirror, it's only, only making it easier on you. I think that's a challenge that I even have a family member who went through our speech therapy as a middle and high schooler and they couldn't get it covered under insurance because it's post that developmental really? you know, time frame. Um, because just one in their mind the R is one sound. We know it's not, but um, they had to seek it out privately or just pay out of pocket. Well, you would think that like medical would cover that because like insurance would cover that because like that's what we do yeah i unfortunately Whatever. i think it's very common that past a certain age they won't well that's dumb mm -hmm. insurance is dumb so it's Can also unfortunate too when it's not picked up in the schools because it's just one sound or one air it's not impacting education uh, because we know that that can impact people's daily interactions we have to make an argument sometimes that that impacts their social language because it's impacting their confidence or their ability to communicate effectively or participate in classroom activities. You know, we've got to look at the whole kid. It's really so much on an individualistic basis. You know, sometimes you know, I've met high school kids that can't do 
R's and L's and they have no problem with it. You know, it's time for speech therapy. And they're like, no, I'm not going to speech therapy. I want to stay in class. Mm-hmm. So when you have an, you have an instant like that, okay, fine. Don't work on it, whatever. It, you can deal with it yourself, work on it yourself, or just live with it. It's, it's part of who you are. Sometimes it becomes part of the person's identity. It's, it's, I don't say my R's, fine. That's who I am. But other times you're going to, you have a student that it will affect social. It will affect their ability to access the curriculum and and have and have those appropriate transitions. Mm-hmm. And like you said, if you do have that high schooler, middle schooler, or even adult, where it's almost become more of an accent modification, right? That becomes True. such an ingrained pattern, motor pattern for them to produce that sound in a specific way. So they're going to have to work at it quite a bit. But if they're very motivated, they're going to go home and stand in front of that mirror and work on that sound and and want to improve on their own. So you're not going to have to motivate them as much if they're that, they have that self-intrinsic motivation for it. Exactly. Motivation is the key to all success in speech therapy. True. Kind of like coming to work. Motivated to work, motivated to make money, motivated to practice, motivated to fix the R's. I like it. What do you do? Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. Email us speech science podcast at gmail.com or call us or as Michelle likes to say, text us 614-681-1798. Or I guess find us on Instagram. What's the Instagram, Michelle? I'm speech still learning science. Instagram. Oh, well that's easy. I think it's like <laughs> isn't it like speech underscore science? Speech underscore science, correct. See, go. that's not as easy. Find the hashtag SS pod. I'll put that on the Twitter uh, as well. Our, our last story for today, uh, this is coming out of ASHA, uh, the start date for the U.S. implementation of the International Dysphagia, Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative uh, is announced, and it's Better Speech and Hearing Month. May 1st, 2019 is the official launch date for the IDDSI in the USA. This I work with adults. Happy. I'm excited by this, by the way. I, I'm very excited about this because... It's, it's been a debate in different settings that I've worked in, um, outpatient pediatrics as well as uh, SNF settings of when we say dysphagia level one or whatever the term mm-hmm. is they use in that facility, there was no universal definition of that between dietitians and speech pathologists and nursing staff. And this is agreed upon by the... Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and ASHA. So that's awesome. I'm looking at the upside down and right side up triangles from the IDDSI.org website. And I'll kind of run through them very quickly for you guys. So it starts at level zero. It's thin liquids. It's drinks. Then one is slightly thick. Two is mildly thick. Three is either moderately thick liquids or liquidized food. Level four is extremely thick liquids or pureed foods. Five is minced and moist foods. Six is soft and bite-sized foods. And seven uh, is easy to chew or regular uh, foods. And I, and I love the idea that it's just one continuum from liquids to solids because I can't tell you how many times I work with a patient and I'm like, all right, you're on a pureed food diet. And they're like, well, what's that mean for drinks? And it's kind of be nice to have a handout that I can kind of just circle 
the area that they may be in. And you've got that right here. I love it. Michael, do you do a lot with dysphagia? I do zero. Okay. Michelle? Um, I did in the sniff and then in outpatient pediatrics, yes. This is something that scares me more than anything is dysphagia therapy. And I went to a very interesting uh, training on it. And the takeaway that I got from it, and it might have been the completely wrong takeaway, but uh, they, they equated it to doctors and how doctors will give you a prescription and you leave the office. And it's up to you to take the prescription. And if you don't take the prescription, the doctor doesn't lose sleep over you not taking your prescription. But I feel like when I work with dysphagia patients, I'll say, okay, you need to be on, you know, the old honey thick, which I guess now is level three liquids, three to four liquids, and say, you need to make your your liquids moderately thick. And then I worry that if they didn't do it, am I going to look bad? Or if a patient says, I'm not taking your prescription, the doctor doesn't really worry about it. He'll tell them why he should or shouldn't do it. But I feel like with dysphagia, if a patient says, I'm going to eat my cheeseburger, even though we're on puree, we make them sign release forms and we feel terrible. What happens if they aspirate and we worry it's our license? So this is why it scares me. But maybe like a chart like this will help make it easier for families to understand it. I think so, because this is something that we can cross, you know, professions be on the same page on. And instead of having to have a debate in the patient's room with the dietitian or with the nursing staff, we have something to give them and show them and say, hey, this is what we're following and this is why it's implemented here. And this is an example of it and a picture and <laughs> a chart. So. Right. Uh, according to their website, IDDSI.org, they've got a perfect way on how to adopt and implement the IDDSI. Please note that you do not require special permission to use their resources. So we will link to it. And actually, maybe we will, uh, can we throw it up on the Instagram? Yeah. Yes, we their can. conversion charts. Definitely. NDD to IDSI. So, okay, here's the mapping. Regular is, is level seven. Dysphagia advanced is six. Dysphagia me- mechanically altered is five. Puree is four. Uh, liquid food is three. That's terrible. That looks gross. Sorry, guys. Thin is zero. Naturally thick. Okay, nectar thick is two. Honey thick is three. And spoon thick or I was always taught as pudding thick, uh, is level four. So so there you go. We'll put those up on our Instagram. I feel so hip by saying we'll put them up on the Instagram, guys. On the gram. <laughs> on, on the, the gram. gram. On the gram. Oh. oh, they've even got labels for it. Huh. Sorry, you can put labels on your food for the levels. That's fantastic. Yes. So the IDDSI, May 1st, 2019. Coming up after the break, Kathy Sofo and I sat down to talk about her running for VP of Planning uh, for ASHA. That opens up here soon. So we will be having a ASHA uh, election special where we will rerun all three of those interviews uh, in a couple of weeks because we've got a third one coming up next week, guys. I'm so excited by that. Good work with the interviews, Matt. 
Thanks. We're like the CNN Fox of speech therapy elections. Keep it up. Next year, next year we host a debate. That's what I say we do. We should. I mean, head over to our head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. And from there, you can find our phone number to text or call 614-681-1798 or email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is brought to you by Pearson, the company behind the self, GFTA, and the brand new PPVT5 and EVT3. These new easy-to-use vocabulary assessments are brief and reliable for two years, six months old, to those 90 and beyond. Learn more about these new tests at pearsonclinical.com slash exceptional. That's pearsonclinical.com slash E-P-T-I-O-N-A-L. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hott. I am so excited today to be joined by Dr. Kathy Sofel, Professor and Program Director from the University of Nebraska, Omaha, and also running for the VP of Planning position from ASHA. Uh, Kathy has served with the students from the Lakota Sioux population. She was a SLP program. Uh, what is the SLP program for the Easter Seals? I was going to explain that, but I don't actually know what that is. It's <laughs> a good question. Um, when I, I was my, well, we were, my husband and I were moved to Bismarck, North Dakota for his position. And at that time, um, the Easter Seals had a freestanding clinic. And Easter Seals used to be much more dominant, particularly on the East Coast, with a lot of freestanding, more like rehab community clinics. And one of the things they were really wanting was to open a program for speech and language pathology. But the interesting thing was North Dakota had a licensure law but they had no programs to prepare master's degree people. So I was um, a unique bird moved in from the South to um, Bismarck, North Dakota. And they found out that I was a master's degree SLP and immediately said, what can you do for us? <laughs> and so we started a Easter Seal speech and language clinic uh, that served the community. and. It was very broad in the sense that you served all ages. Also worked with the uh, community health center there. So children who had significant communication problems and or behavior. Um, kids that today we would probably see in schools as being on the autism spectrum. So I did a lot of consulting with them. And then that actually is what led to being contacted by the Bureau of Indian Affairs to work with, first of all, um, Child Find. So they wanted me to um, go to the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation and identify kids who might need services. And then from there, uh, hired me to work with the teachers at their Head Start program. So in the summer, and I did not do this in the winter months in North Dakota, I have to confess. Um, it was a summer gig. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was 75 miles each way. 
So, uh, yeah. So Bureau of Indian Affairs said, you know, we'll pay your mileage. What do you need? We just need you to hopefully work with the staff. So they were better equipped really to help the kids develop their language skills, their communication skills, so that they were closer to being kindergarten ready. And it was a fabulous experience. I probably learned way more than they ever learned from me because culturally, yeah, I mean, people in your audience don't see me, but if they know anything about who I am, I'm Danish, okay? So I'm pretty fair-haired and look very different than everyone else I was working with on the reservation. It was the first time in my life I've ever been the only one. And I have to say, from a cultural standpoint, it was a fabulous learning experience to to suddenly be thrown in to an environment where you have to figure out how to become part of that environment. So when you ask the question about what is communication, (laughs) there you go. That was um, a great opportunity to figure out how do I communicate with people who by choice choose not to speak to me because I speak English, but will talk around me in their native tongue. And I need to break over that barrier. And you know, where do I go from here to make that happen? So yeah, it was, um, it was a challenging and rewarding and I loved every minute of it. And it's probably part of what encouraged me to work more in the early childhood arena. I was gonna say, so was that pretty early in your career then? It was, mm-hmm. yeah. I had worked in rehab Um, I had done just a short time in the public schools during my CFY, and then I had worked in uh, hospital rehab, and then we were transferred to North Dakota, and the world just all opened up all kinds of possibilities. So, yeah, it was good. So what brought you into the world of speech therapy? My background was radio. And I wanted to be, I wanted to do more and became an SLP. And now I host an SLP podcast. What was your background? How did you find the field? And, and what was that spark that got you there? You know, many of us probably, many people I talked to came about this path in some of the same ways I did. I was in a communications major and they required me to take a course intro course in communication sciences and disorders as we refer to it now. I think it was probably called introduction to communication disorders or something along those lines. I found it fascinating. And so for the first time I became aware of, wow, there's this whole profession out there that I had no idea about. So I continued to pick up additional courses in speech path while I finished my undergraduate major in secondary education, communications. And when I finished, <clears throat> when I finished my bachelor's, I was just short of an a audiology course. So I immediately went back and did my master's and picked up those deficiencies. And truly, I've never looked back. That, I mean, I've, I've drawn on that background, I think, in just public speaking and communication, but, uh, you know, the field is so much 
more dynamic, more challenging, more to me rewarding <laughs> than I think what I would have had. But you know, I don't know. You don't get to live both paths. So yeah, but that's what got me there. That's and awesome. I tell students all the time, you know, the variety in our discipline, you're never if you choose to diversify, you're never locked in one place. And kind of my history is evidence of that. I've done a lot of different things. So, yeah. And some of the things you've done, I'm reading through your, your resume, you were professor, department chair, and program director at Wichita State. Currently, you're the professor and program director at Nebraska Omaha. You were the undergraduate master's and doctoral research, or directed those, been named the Outstanding NISLA Advisor, received the honors of Nebraska's Speech and Language Hearing Association. You co-chaired the 2011 convention. Uh, that was for, so fun, I have to tell you. Yeah. So with all of that, you sound kind of like me, maybe, maybe can't say no. <laughs> what makes you want to do the VP of Planning? You know, yeah, and you hit a few of those highlights along the way, Matt. In a way, I feel like I've been training for this for a long time. And um, I have been very involved in both the state association and the national association and in and out in a variety of different positions. But a couple of things. One is I feel like um, I've had a lot of opportunities to be involved in leadership roles. I served on community boards of directors and certainly within our state association, but I was president of the Council of State Association Presidents. And in that position, and I'm coming around to the answer to your question here, but in that position, a couple of things happened. One was we were struggling as state associations and the Council of State Associations to improve our relationship with ASHA. At that time, we were almost seen as kind of adversarial. It was like ASHA somehow regarded that council as wanting to take over the world. And we regarded ASHA as, I mean, it was kind of a we, they thing for a short period of time. So when I came into the Council of State Association Presidents, it became clear to me that there was this tension between the two groups. And mm -hmm. I struggled to kind of figure out, you know, what was the history and where did this come from? And what do we need to do here differently? Because this should not be, I mean, nobody's, there's a big world out there and nobody's going to own all of it. So let's see what we can do. So as I was on the board for the Council of State Association President, CSAP, the discussions came along and we talked about start, starting a new committee, and it, had, it was named at the time the um, Committee on State and National Association Relations, and it still exists today. But at that time, I was put in charge of getting that up and running, and I was told I needed to contact the then president of ASHA. That just intimidated the hell out of me. <laughs> Let me just say, I thought, how come I pick up the phone and just call the president of ASHA, for goodness sakes? It's just me, this little person from Nebraska. <laughs> and so I did. And the person I had to contact was Catherine Butler. Catherine Butler 
was the goddess of child language at the time when child language was really emerging. So I looked at that as double sort of, you know, intimidation. <laughs> so I contacted her and she was this incredibly human person. I mean, she, she said, when can we meet? Let's get together for coffee. You know, where are you? Let's do this. It immediately, I mean, it's that whole thing of your question of what is communication. It immediately opened the doors. And from the beginning, she said, absolutely. As president of ASHA, I'm 100% behind this. Let's make this happen. Let's do it. And moving forward, we did. Out of that conversation, Kay Butler was, became like a fairy godmother to me. She was uh, the kind of person who looks for opportunities to network people in ways that they might not otherwise be connected and really kind of open doors. Um, she said to me one time when she was asking me to take on the presidency of, of the um, division for deafness and hard of hearing for CEC. And she's like, I, you know, I really think you should chair this. And I'm like, oh, keepers. <laughs> okay. I mean, I had little kids. I was in a full-time position. I, you know, all these things. And she said, before you answer me, let me just say, never say no. Always say yes. <laughs> I'm like, that gives me a lot of trouble, but it does open a lot of doors. So I often do think back to her very words to me was, you never know where it will take you. Say yes, do the best you can. If you do good work, the best you can, that's all anybody can ask for. I'm like, oh, okay, so let's go. <laughs> and you know, that was, um, I think one of those, those kind of aha moments that you periodically have in your career where certain people really do kind of turn your head around a little bit and make you broaden your thinking. And for me, that was a, an important piece. Moving forward, do I think this position is right for me? I do. And I think it is in part because, especially with the experiences I had as department chair, which included not only a very large undergraduate and master's, but also an AUD program. Mm -hmm. It was just really getting its feet on the ground and a PhD program, so we had both you know, audiology and speech path in the PhD program, of course. But I think I got closer to the issues that audiology deals with. And so those 10 years as that department chair there really did help me, I think, be a lot maybe more sensitive to the audiology issues. And um, not that I've ever not felt connected, but I certainly felt differently connected in that role. So, yeah. Oh, that makes sense. I, I sit as the school's rep for the state of Ohio for OSLA. And when an audiologist will ask me a question about in the schools, as a, as a speech path, I, I don't even know this. I know their scope, but I don't know the intricacies. So sure. I almost feel, I don't want to say useless, but I have to go to, luckily our, our OSLA president is an audiologist. <laughs> and I can say, help me. <laughs> right. right. Do you see like I, from a speech path side, 
I, I could see how an audiologist could be disconnected from ASHA because it's a lot of, you know, better here, you know, better hearing and speech month is coming up, but a lot of times we focus on just the speech part. Do you think there's a way that you can help build that gap, that bridge between the audiologists and SLPs with ASHA or? You know, kind of like with that whole bridge that I was talking about yeah. between two organizations. It's all about communication, just really at a grassroots level. I think what happens is we sometimes create a perception that maybe doesn't exist across the broader scope of people, but because maybe some folks are more outspoken, maybe they bring issues more to the front page, that we tend to focus on those. And, you know, that happens today in our media. It happens in pretty much everything we all do. The, you know, the, the old adage about the squeaky wheel. Yeah. <laughs> In a way, I think, from my perspective, the, the way I can most work to bridge gaps is to talk with people. I, I'm pretty much open to, if you have something to say, I'm here to listen. Now, it may be a very different perspective than what I came to the conversation with, and we may have to wrestle with getting some understanding, but it's... It's, again, it's all about where's the breakdown? Where, functionally, if we're not working to address the breakdown, then we're not going to bridge that gap. We're just going to continue to let the river kind of flow through it. And I don't see any point in that. <laughs> it just yeah. takes a lot of energy and it diffuses all kinds of positive possibilities. So for me, I think let's put it on the table and let's deal with it. I, I know from serving as an ASHA SEAL previously and currently, people will come to me in Ohio and say, hey, what's ASHA doing? I pay all these dues, I get nothing out of it. My caseload is at 95 students. My school district has said they'll fire me if I don't see them, et cetera. Right. Then you see on the, the Facebook comments when ASHA releases a, a lighthearted video that reminds you to pay your dues and people get <laughs> mad because they say, oh my gosh, is this what my dues are doing? How come you're not fighting for X, Y, or Z? How, what, can, what do you see yourself in the position of VP for planning to kind of help, you know, you said reach out. How, how can you start to repair some of those squeaky wheels, I guess, that have turned their back on ASHA, but still get the C's because we quote need it. And that's the only reason they see that. Like, how can we bridge that gap? <laughs> you know, I think um, a real priority I have for this position, I mean, we have this strategic pathway. It's all conceptually beautifully arranged and laid out. I would guess that and maybe I'm wrong about percentages, this is just a number, I would say at least 85% of our members have no idea. They don't know what it is or why it is, but more important to me is they don't know where they fit. Mm -hmm. So you have this beautiful thing and you have this map and it shows, you know, we're going to grow and we're going to take this in stages and these are the things we're going to do. But 
where do I see myself fitting in? And that's one of the areas that I've been really, um, and I told you I'm not very pretentious, so I don't, I don't blow my own horn very well, but I have been very successful in connecting people and ideas that often don't see where they would fit together at all. I think part of that is just that you need to listen. You need to, you need to say to people, I'm here. If you feel like you're not getting your needs met, what needs are you not getting met? And where, where can we start to work together to figure out what's the niche that we're not filling? And if the, if there's, if there's a potential over here, let's tap into it. Um, it, it's with everything. I mean, that's, that's where we all are, right? I'm in the grocery store. I can't find what I want on the shelf. If I don't tell the man at the front, hey, I can't find this. He doesn't know what I'm looking for. He doesn't know that I go away disgruntled. Well, ask. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty simple, really. What we do <laughs> is not, I mean, it is rocket science in many ways, but at the same time, it, it's not. And what we all know is what is this whole discipline that we're in we listen we communicate so if i'm if i'm listening i can put a voice to your needs and i guess i'm only one person but i have a pretty good working sense of asha and its workings and some of the boards that i've you know, chaired for ASHA, the Scientific and Professional Education Board was a fabulous way to really dig into a different side of ASHA in terms of the continuing ed and so forth. But one of the things I realized when I took over that role as chair of that board, we had this huge board and all these people came to this face-to-face -face meeting. And at the end of the day, all I heard was everybody saying what they wanted just for their niche, but nobody talking about how can we work together to make any of these initiatives happen. So I said to my colleagues at ASHA, you know, I, I'm not sure that this board is structured the way it needs to be structured in today's world. Let's, let's figure out what, when did this mission get written? I mean, it's here in front of me, I see that, but where did this come from? What's the history behind it? And what we discovered was that board was created in 1975. Wow. It had never been revisited. In 1975, it did serve the right purpose. It included the pub board and the student organization and the special interests and all of that in 1975, 30, no, 40 years later, it's not serving the same purpose. And the purpose it's serving is a 1975 purpose. So we had to completely undo, unravel, redo, reconstruct everything. <laughs> and to do that, and actually got an email just about 10 days ago from my counterpart, at ASHA who said, you would be so happy. You would be so proud of how we're functioning because it is so good now. And I'm like, 
Well, great, because we worked really hard to make that happen. But it's not about any one of those people who were on that board. It was all about we were all there serving a mission that wasn't relevant anymore. So those are the kinds of things that I think you have to be willing to kind of take some bruises. Take, I mean, <laughs> I felt like I was pretty beat up as the chair of that board at the end of the first day. I was like, man, I'm failing here. And something's gotta, something's gotta be different or I need to be different or whatever. And so, I, you know, I think that sometimes we just have to be able to step back and say, tell, talk to me, tell me where we are, tell me what's going on. Now let's see how we can identify some different connecting points. And for me, I look at the strategic plan, it's, it's all set around the vision, it's all set around the mission, but I don't think people see themselves there. And maybe they don't see themselves there because they don't know how to get on board, how to fit in, or how to voice their needs. I'm not sure always, mm -hmm. but those are the questions I think we ask. I, I love what you said, and I, and I have to give you credit because as I was looking through your resume, and and see that you're you're a professor and you have to st find a way to connect with our students. <laughs> I do. I, I've had a couple students over the last three years, and as I get older, I find it harder and harder to connect because as I get older, the students stay the same age. The 20, yes, they do. <laughs> 22, 23 years old, they don't have kids. My kids get older, and I find the things to try to to connect are older and older and older. Um, I was talking to my intern the other day and I referenced uh, a 2000s TV show and she had never heard of it. <laughs> How do you find yourself trying to bridge that gap in the classroom? And do you think that'll help yourself connect with the newer ASHA members versus just the people that have been there for 5, 10, 15 years? You know, it's just so funny that you started this conversation <laughs> where you did a few minutes ago. A student I had in my class a couple semesters ago was, I came out of my class, my classroom on Tuesday afternoon and I walked out and she was sitting in the hallway and I, I said, oh, you know, what are you working on? And so we started chatting. Well, what I learned from her was that she is coaching a high school speech team oh, and that so. they are going to a national competition. Actually, it's kind of, I sort of merged two things there. She coaches this team, but she herself is going to a national competition where she will be speaking. I said, oh, well, what, what type of speaking do you compete in? And she kind of looked at me funny and she goes, well, you know something about this stuff? And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> what, you know, what are, you, what are your areas? And she said, well, I'm going to do impromptu and I said and extemporaneous and she went wow like you really do know something about this <laughs> so I let her tell her story and what she was doing and this is this is an area she's not competed in before she typically competes in a different area and so we started talking about it and, and she said so how do you know anything about this my pathway into speech path. I said, I told her briefly how I got into speech path. She went, 
my gosh, Dr. Sofal, I had no idea about that. I didn't know that about you. And I said, you know, that's why I like to talk with you guys, because I'm a person besides just who you see in front of the classroom. And, you know, we had a good laugh and chit-chatted away. I think those are the those are the ways we connect. This is, you know, this is a barely 20-something. And <laughs> There are, there are ways in our lives that we can pull together. Maybe we didn't live it, but we can find ways to connect to it. And I, so here's the other funny story that came back to me today. And this one, this one took me totally off guard. I was talking with one of our newer faculty members who's, she's very young. She's got two tiny kids at home. She's a delightful, wonderful woman. And she'd had a guest lecturer in a classroom yesterday. Well, the guest lecturer was one of my former students. I, this is my second rodeo at UNO. I was there for 16 years. I went away and then I came back three years ago. She said, in the middle of this guest speaker's lecture to this now graduate class, the guest speaker said, now, I'm going to tell you something I learned from Dr. Sofa when she was my teacher. This is a tool that you can put in your tool belt. <laughs> so we had a really good laugh about it because it was like, okay, that is kind of a saying that I probably did somewhere along the line use. I don't know, but <clears throat> obviously it's stuck. And so maybe everything we do doesn't get totally outdated, even though my daughter who is in technology can't believe how much I say to her, but I don't know how to do that. She's like, mom, come on. This is simple <laughs> stuff. <laughs> okay. I, I can learn it. So yeah. that's, well, that's funny. You say the, the, about the tool belt at the end of every show, we do the be a willow. Don't be an oak treat as our, as our ending. Oh, thing. Uh -huh. And I got that from my clinical supervisor, Janice Wright. And every time I introduce a new topic to one of the teachers I work with in the high school, and they kind of give me that look of, this seems like a really new thing I don't want to do. I'm always like, hey, <laughs> be a willow. It'll be okay. We'll weather the storm together. And I had a teacher the other day. She said something happened to the schedule, and I gave her the look. And she goes, Matt, be a willow. And I was like, okay. Okay. That has now come 360. <laughs> It does sometimes come back to haunt you. <laughs> so I got one more question about the, the ASHA VP before we get to know you a little bit more. Okay. Let's say you win. And at the end of your VP of planning time, what would you want to see have been accomplished that would make you feel that you did a good thing for ASHA? You know, I was thinking about how to measure... <clears throat> people's connections to ASHA. And it's, it's a bit like these groups that are trying to measure um, investments they make in environmental issues. Uh, there's business terminology for it, and I'm probably not going to be able to use the right terminology. But for me, I look at if I've, if I've done anything have I increased the number of people who maybe made contact to ASHA for a, a particular area? So did we get more volunteers signing up? Did we get 
more people who call the action line and say, you know, I want to do X, Y, or Z? Do we get more people who look different than me? Joining ASHA, staying with ASHA, becoming active members of ASHA, that's not easy. And we grow in numbers, and I know that in that growth, we have a much broader diversity than certainly we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But do all of those individuals feel like they see themselves in ASHA? Do they feel like they have a connection? If, if we can measure those connections and we can see that, it's hard to say more because more than what? But we got almost 200,000 people in this organization. We're huge. We talk about being client-centric. We talk about being consumer-driven. Our consumers of ASHA are our members. And how much are we really driven to serve our members in a way that people feel like they've been touched? And yes, that is hard to measure. And there are better minds than mine that can help me figure out how to sort of tally those things. But I I just feel like when you know I have students who come back to me from 20 years ago and say, you know what, I still remember. You made me feel this way. It's all about how you make people feel. Do they feel connected? Do they feel as though they belong? If they don't feel like they belong, they're not gonna volunteer. They're not going to pick up the phone and call. Then they will become that front page news that's the squeaky wheel. So for me, it's more about can we create more a greater sense of feeling like Asha really does represent me and I see myself there? That's probably the best way I can capture it. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> if I were to ask, but but we're all known for having a lot of words. So I was gonna say my uh, my supervisor in the schools, we all bought the speakcast bought her a gavel with her name on it for during speech meetings, she can get our attention. Uh, <laughs> there you go. So I want to get to know you just a little bit. And I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and feel free to say, Matt, I don't want to answer that question if I if you don't want to answer that question. Okay. So where are you from originally? Where were you born? How did you get to Nebraska? All that fun stuff. Omaha. Okay. Omaha's home for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, we've lived a few other places, but... Uh, Omaha, I always have regarded Omaha as home. And um, I, you know, I felt like I was ready to come back here uh, when I was, I, I, I was at a point where I needed to probably get a little closer back to Omaha than I was. I have a 96 year old dad here and it takes a village to raise a 96 year old dad. So it was a good time to, it was an opportunity, it was a good time to come back. And I've always loved what I did at UNO, and so it's been nice to be able to come back to that. I know I mentioned uh, that I have the five and the two-year-old. You said you had a daughter. Do you have just the one? Do you have multiple? Are they I have two daughters. Three? <laughs> two daughters. Um, 
both of whom say, I'd never do what you do, mom. You guys work way too hard. I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, we do. I, I'm sorry I set that role model for you. But um, now I look at them and say, uh, excuse me, you're working a whole lot more than I am. So my daughters um, are very, very adventuresome and very successful. And I'm very proud of them. My, um, my oldest daughter has just completed medical school in Australia. Wow. She, she, this is her third kind of career step. Um, She started out in marine science and did her master's degree at University of Queensland and then came back to the States and worked in genetics. And then she went back to Australia and worked in genetics and got her Australian citizenship and then went to University of Notre Dame in Perth, Australia for medical school. And she's actually, um, she actually has in the last six weeks completed her first year of internship. So yeah, so uh, she's working a whole whole lot harder than I probably work. So, you know, I remind them that, hey, yeah, come on. My other daughter, my younger daughter, um, she was, she was equally as adventuresome, but in a different way. She spent three years in Mozambique, Africa, training teachers. Wow. And um, loved it and would probably go back and may at some point go back. But she came back to the States and uh, was a fifth grade teacher. And then she got a second master's degree in library media technology because she's um, a technology queen. She's also the science consultant for her metropolitan school district, a large metropolitan school district, because she's like a science guru. She just kind of wants to grow up to be Bill Nye, the science guy. I think (laughs) if her husband was ever jealous of anybody, it'd probably have to be Bill Nye, the science guy. She she is here in Omaha. She and her husband are here in Omaha. And um, both of them work in the school district. Her husband is multilingual and is an interpreter. Wow. the school district so so you know again it was kind of good to come back home yeah of everything you've done as an slp what is the one thing you're the most proud of wow one thing i have to put it down to one uh, or a few uh, like that, that, what's that maybe i should say this what's that one story when someone goes you're an, you're an SLP. What do they do? Or what's the story? What's your go-to story? My go-to story. You know what? Um, one of the things I am really very proud of, and most people probably are not even aware that I ever got involved in this at all. Um, when I was in Wichita, and it was a very serendipitous kind of connections, series of connections, but I had an opportunity to put some very different people from very broad range of geographic range together to um, allow me to put our students together with a medical team that goes to at, goes to Haiti twice a year. Okay. And because I was in a health profession, college of health professions there, it did give me an opportunity to put physician assistant, PT, 
medical, medical technology, speech path and audiology, um, nursing, all of them together in an opportunity to spend two weeks at a time, we go twice a year for two weeks in Haiti. This medical team is there to do surgeries. Um, there's a clinic there and they certainly do clinical, some clinical work too, but only, the, only during the time the medical team is there is there an anesthesiologist. And so it's the only time that there's surgery. So I was able to have speech path students who stood shoulder to shoulder with surgeons in the operating room. And as one of the grad students told me, they were doing an operation on a very large facial tumor. And she said, the greatest experience I ever had was that physician showing me, you know, here's the vagus. Look what happens when I touch it. Here's what I'm doing here and why I have to be really careful here and here and here. You can't do that in the U.S. The, our students would never have the opportunities that putting wheels under that idea really changed lives, not just for people in Haiti. It changed lives for all of our students who went, and those are, and it's all those disciplines. So am I proud of that? I am. Because you know what? It was not easy. <laughs> that is the best story I've ever heard to that question. You know, the politics of universities and liabilities and finance and all of those things, you just have to be willing to not take no for an answer and figure out, okay, if that's an issue, where do we go from here? And uh, we still have that program. It's still going. And I'm really happy about that. That is so cool. I almost feel bad asking you my next question now. No, go in ahead. In the same bad. idea of everything you've done as an SLP, we all have the story that we're the, makes us laugh, but we also may be the most embarrassed by. Oh. I'll let you in on mine before I ask you what yours is. Okay. When, when I was in my adult placement or the medical placement, and my supervisor was showing me how to pull the the trach button now. I, I don't work with, sure. with trachs. Okay. And he showed me. And it pulled out. And as soon as he pulled it out and I caught the smell, the room became a tunnel. I got super warm. My supervisor said my color in my face went from my normal view to whiter than the shirt I was wearing. And he just looked at me and said, hey, Matt, why don't you go sit on the heater by the window for a few minutes? <laughs> That's my most embarrassing. I almost passed out in the therapy room or in the patient's room while the, the patient just looked at me and just started, he just started to laugh just because he could see what was happening. So that's my embarrassing story. What is wow. your that either makes you laugh or kind of embarrassing that you don't mind sharing with, with our audience? Makes me laugh. Oh gosh, there's so many times that, you know, I've been in situations that are so unfamiliar to me that it's like, well, Okay, um, I think I think I would have to say working with doctoral students 
there were so many times that we just, we just had to all look at each other and laugh because <laughs> I was teaching a seminar on research ethics. And uh, those are like sometimes kind of tough. They're tough, you know. <laughs> you bring these cases in and you go, okay, let's talk about this. And, you know, where did things go wrong? What, you know, what was violated here? So students have a way of bringing you up to the standard you're supposedly teaching. <laughs> and then they're saying things like, so Dr. Sofo, did you keep lab books in your lab? And I'm like, uh, well, that would be no, <laughs> no, but let me go, let me explain a little further after we all got done laughing. Um, I didn't ever really have a lab. My lab was always the classroom or the home where I was seeing families or kids or whatever. So, yeah. So, and I had a lot of times when I, I knew that, you know, I had good laughs with families. I did home-based services when I was running their early intervention program for the Omaha Public Schools. I kept a piece of my time for home-based services. And you know, when you're doing home-based, you whatever happens, happens. And you have a two-year-old, so you know. I, I can't plan how things are gonna go. And so, if we're throwing spaghetti on the wall, well, that's just what we're doing. And <laughs> we might next be bathing. So yeah, <laughs> those, you know, those are moments that mostly, mostly you just have to say, yeah, we're all pretty human here. Yeah. Kathy, you've been so awesome with your time. Is there anything that I didn't get to touch on that you were hoping to maybe talk to our audience about? You know, I think, <sighs> There's so many issues that people consider hot topics. Some of those change, but sometimes they just morph. And I guess for me thinking about, and you ask really good questions about like, you know, what are your priorities? What, what's like the most important thing to you? To me, they're all important, but we have to at times prioritize a little bit because it's like it's like working in the schools you're serving the masses everybody doesn't have the Cadillac everybody doesn't have the Lexus but it doesn't mean that everybody can't be transported and so I guess for me taking those hot topics and keeping them as hot topics but but not letting them cloud our vision for how do we move everything forward? And I've done a lot of work, a lot of behind the scenes work and a lot of kind of in front of the camera kind of work in working to develop interprofessional collaborative, whether it's practice, whether it's education, whether it's research, for me, the whole idea of collaborative efforts is what really I feel like if people know anything about me I would hope that they know that's a passion 
I'm really serious about what, what do we need to do to become more collaborative and how can I maybe help make that happen in ways in the context of this position. So I guess that's, that's really who I am. Well, I, and I, I love that. And I hope that you do well in the election and win or lose. We would love to have you back on the show to either Thank talk you. about any of your wonderful research that we just didn't get to or your papers or maybe talking about the VP of planning. There you go. And <laughs> I do really appreciate the time. Thank you. And it's been so fun just chatting. This is, this is what I'd like to do with any member. There you go. There you go. You could have the VP of planning speech science podcast open forum. I'm just throwing that out there. Okay. I'm holding you to it, Matt. <laughs> the you have the radio skills. <laughs> we'll make this happen. The 2019 elections open up on April 16th. They run through May 29th, 2019. Uh, it'll be a three-year term starting on January 1st, 2020. Dr. Kathy Sofel, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Have a good evening. You too. Bye-bye. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hott, joined, as always, by the one and the only and the wonderful Michelle Wintering. Aw, what a nice intro. And a guy who is named after my son, Michael McLeod. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Michael and I Guys, have the same name, just male and female. That's true. Oh, that's right. That there is you go. Point. We're like Eminem and M. Triple M. Triple M. Uh, that previous interview was Kathy Sofel. She is the VP for planning candidate uh, for ASHA. Next week, we have Yvette Heider, who I'm actually interviewing on Wednesday of this week, and that'll run next week. So we'll have all three candidates, Craig Coleman, Yvette Heider, and Kathy Sofel on the airs of Speech Science. We are legit, guys. Yes, we are. <laughs> Michelle, what were you telling us about in the break? Oh, um, I wasn't sure if you saw the Google Doodle for today. No. The blind sidewalk? Yes, that it is um, in celebration of Seishi Miyake. I probably said that completely wrong, but he was the inventor, is the inventor of the tactile. They call them Tenji blocks, which are used, you think, train platforms or other places where it's raised. It almost kind of looks like Legos. Um, either circles or, or blocks in order to uh, help someone who's blind or visually impaired navigate when they're using their cane, their white cane, or uh, walking, that they can feel that texture change, uh, especially for safety. So we'll link to an article about him, mm -hmm. but kind of neat to celebrate. Michelle, you, you worked in the School for the Blind and Deaf, correct? I did, yeah. Colorado School for the Deaf and the Blind. Majority of my caseload was, I had the whole School for the Blind because it was much smaller than the School for the Deaf. And then I took the um, over overflow extra students when they needed support in the School for the, I had the School for the Blind and I took the overflow from the School for the Deaf. There we so go. honestly, until this article, uh, I didn't actually realize what those yellow tiles were for. And I assumed that they were like non-slip things so that you didn't fall in the rain. And I feel terrible for doing that. So now I'm about to ask you a real legit question. When, when, you, when a student or an adult has the cane, I always thought they were like tapping it to make sure nothing was in the way. Are they really using it to like, because I guess they would have to almost drag it on the ground to feel these 
reptiles? Um, typically they move their canes. They call it trailing. Uh, okay. I learned a lot from that. I should find... I'm going to interview an O&M. I'm going to get one of them on our show at some point. Orientation Mobility Specialist. But they are amazing, amazing resources. And every school district that has any blind or visually impaired or low vision student has one. They're probably itinerant and contract, but um, they are awesome people to learn from if you have a patient or a student who has a visual impairment at all. Um, but they teach kids and adults who are blind to travel safely. And that includes everything from using a white cane to the bus system to any kind of public transportation. Um, and they'll trail the cane um, on, you know, on the wall, but they also sweep out uh, away from it. So they, that's why okay. they move their cane left and right. As they See, walk. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. I just assumed they were doing the left and right to make sure they didn't run into anything. But I guess now that makes sense that it would be like... I mean, that's one piece of it, of course. But Well, I thought that was the only piece. So, yeah. But I also have never worked with a blind student that had a cane. Yeah. So. But they're great. I mean, O&M instructors, they have master's degrees as well. This is their whole specialty. And a lot of them are also TBIs, teachers of the visually impaired, but not always. Shout out to our other related service folks. I love it. All right, let's put this thing to bed. Michael McLeod, what are you doing this week that is fun and or exciting therapy or non-therapy related? Um, well, I have to go to a wedding this weekend out of state. So I'm kind of cramming a lot into the four days. Uh, have to or are you excited? Uh, kind of. All right. <laughs> So yeah, getting there, but uh, yeah, I have, I have a lot of uh, a lot of great consults this week, meeting a lot of great new people, uh, uh, really collaborating. Did I lose you guys? No, I was just nodding my head, hoping that I can like pull it off of his audio and then drop it in. Can you hear me? Uh, we lost it at a lot of collaborating. Oh, yes. Yeah, my, my it keeps freezing. I don't know how that happened. So should I answer it again? Yes. Okay, great. Okay. Do you want to ask me again? No, just do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I have a, uh, a wedding this week on Saturday, so I'll be leaving uh, Thursday evening. So I'll be cramming uh, five days of work into four. Uh, I have a lot of really great, exciting consults coming up this week, meeting a lot of great new families and people. Uh, doing a lot of collaboration out in the community, uh, doing some great multidisciplinary work, which I always look forward to. So yeah, should be a great week. Awesome. Michelle, are you uh, already building the college application admission case for baby speech science? Is that what you're doing this week? I'm <laughs> sure. Every day, right? Um, just don't do like, an Aunt Becky. Like putting just a don't do an Aunt Becky. Every day to help pay for it. <laughs> Just make sure that if, if if baby speech science really rose, then then you can put it on the college application. Okay, Aunt Becky? Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, goodness. What are you doing this week? Uh, well, today is my parents' 41st anniversary. That's pretty cool. Happy birthday. Or happy birthday. Happy, happy anniversary, birthday to their Chief. wedding. Sure. <laughs> uh, but yes, 41 years is worth celebrating. Uh, and then... I do have a friend coming in from El Paso this week to Kentucky for the hippotherapy conference that I told you all about and looking forward to seeing her and connecting with some other people in the hippotherapy world and, um, you know, doing the daily That's awesome. thing. 
that's pretty cool. For me, I uh, I have 10 days until, I'm sorry, nine days at this point until spring break hits. So I've got three, maybe four ETRs left. That number has diminished drastically. I've got eight to 12 IEPs left between now and the end of the year. I have a intern or an extern that I've got to corrupt or make better between now and the end of spring break. I've got a full platter over here, guys. Definitely corrupt. Definitely corrupt. <laughs> she uh, she yelled at me the other day, so I felt like she has finally fit in and understood that I need to be yelled at. So, <laughs> oh, anywho. Head over to our website. We do want to hear from you. It's speechsciencepodcast.com. And from there, you can email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com or give us a phone call or a text 614-681-1798. Our opening music tonight is Please Listen Carefully by Jazar. It's licensed under an attribution and share alike license. Our bump music is The Spellbreaker by Tritachion. It's licensed under an attribution license. And our closing music, The Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution license. For Michelle Wintering and Michael McLeod, I'm Matt Hot, saying so long, and in the immortal words of Janice Wright, be a willow, because under a storm the oak will break, the willow will bend and return to form. So long, everybody. Bye, Matt. Bye, Mike. Bye. This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.